All right, at this time, please open your Bibles, and we're going to continue in our series in Habakkuk. So turn to the prophet of Habakkuk, please, and we're going to finish chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start at verse 12, where Habakkuk is responding to the prediction of Chaldea's fierce attack upon the people of Judah. So starting at verse 12, Habakkuk 1, verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things? that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? So far, let us pray. Holy God, we come before you again, recognizing this is your word, this prophecy given many years ago, written for the covenant people, old and new, written for the church of God. Give us wisdom, give us understanding, illumine our hearts and minds to behold wondrous things from thy great word. Give me wisdom to speak the word faithfully, and that in all things, your holy name is glorified. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. All right, this morning um, I will be dealing with verses 13 to 17. Last time we set the stage of Habakkuk's response in verse 12. I have three points to bring out from verses 13 to 17. They are these, grappling with unjust dominance gathering with greedy delight, and given to godless desires. So first of all, grappling with unjust dominance. This is again a continuation of where we've been. Remember, Chaldea is going to be barbaric as she bulldozes really into the land of Judah and takes man, woman, and child and leads them into captivity after slaying countless numbers of them. We have to remember that Habakkuk, who had prayed for justice for wicked Judah, is now so surprised that the just God would bring an even more barbaric nation into their own lands. And so there's a shock that goes over his own heart. And so in verse 12, what we saw last time was that Habakkuk pleads God's character back to him. That is the beginning of all prayer, pleading who God is is. And now, from verse 13 to 17, he goes on to describe in shock how God could do this. These are all rhetorical questions based on God's character. Notice, first of all, he brings up the purer eyes of God. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. The idea of purity was part of Israel's entire existence as a nation, wasn't it? We can see that 24 times in Deuteronomy, when it's describing the tabernacle, it will use this word 
pure for the gold that will cover many of the elements of the tabernacle. We see 21 times this same word of purity gets used in Leviticus with respect to the priests who would minister among the people of God. So absolutely, he's right to say thou art of purer eyes because everything that relates to God relates to his purity, his holiness, his zeal for absolute um, ze- uh, absolute pristine holiness. But this word only gets used here in the book of Habakkuk. How could God allow such impurity then into his land? In fact, look what it says, thou art of pure eyes. And then look how it says, and canst not look upon evil. You see that? The eyes refer to what? What do the eyes refer to in Scripture? Omniscience. God's all-seeing eye that sees everything that happens on the land. Before the hand touches, the eye sees. And he says, God, you know you cannot countenance even a momentary glance over anything wicked. In fact, in one of the other prophets, Isaiah, it says this. It says, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. And so he's right to to talk about what God sees. But then notice he moves from the eyes to the mouth. Because here's the shock. It's not so much that God sees in his omniscience. It's that he doesn't say anything. Right? And holdest thy tongue, it says in the text, when the wicked devour God doesn't seem to be responding at all. He seems to be silent in this whole episode. The psalmist again says something similar when he says, This thou hast seen, O Lord, keep not silence. O Lord, be not far from me. What do we learn from this? We learn that the right reaction when you see injustice is to speak out against it. That would be the normal thing to do. In fact, in the law, in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, It says, if a soul sin and hear the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of it, if he do not utter it, he shall bear his iniquity. What you witness, you must respond to. That is the right thing to do. Similarly, in Proverbs 31, where King Lemuel gets told what a righteous king ought to do, a righteous ruler of the land, it says this, open thy mouth. Judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. So when we see things, we should respond. And so you understand Habakkuk's shock because it seems that God is silent. Do you, do we, when we see people abused by their peers at school or at work, do we speak up for them? Are we a mouthpiece? when others can't speak? Who will speak in this nation for the unborn that are getting slaughtered before they can even utter one word? Do you speak up in the public square for the unborn? You know, this can also hit a lot closer to home. Do you witness people gossiping, maybe after church in a corner, young people, they're speaking behind their back about somebody else. Do you speak up against that? Do you admonish one another and take the courage to do that? Parents, but even young men and women, 
When you hear children complaining that they deserve better, do you address that? Do you speak to the heart? Or do we just see it and pretend we never really did and turn away quickly? You ever had that? You lock eyes with something or someone and you know you know you should say something, but you look down and try to avoid it? I think we all know what that looks like, don't we? You see, so when Habakkuk here appeals to the highest court, the most righteous, the most pure one, we got to understand that he is bewildered because throughout Scripture we are taught, yes, speak up. And so we have to see here where this goes. And we aren't going to see the answer till really chapter 3 here, but it will start to get unpacked. When injustice then happens, and if you are a believer in God, as I assume we are sitting here this morning, many people will take injustice, and we see books that do this, and they will believe that because God allows it, God has changed. Either God is no longer all-seeing and he just missed it, that's what some people do with God, well, he's less now, or he's no longer omnipotent and all-powerful, and he can't do anything about it. He's pulling his hair out, as it were, or he is no longer just. And all of these ideas are written in the pages of professing teachers and preachers that you can buy at your local Christian bookstore. Don't buy these books, please. I'm just telling you, that is how some people have responded. Maybe you remember the book many years ago, Templeton, Farewell to God. But Habakkuk will not entertain that. God is, he starts with, his holiness, his eternality. And so what this means is perplexity is no excuse to give up on God's character and his being ever. The change has to happen with us. It cannot happen with the immutable God. And then, really, we have to embrace his purity. I love the fact that God is unswerving, that he is constant, that he is pure holiness. Can you imagine if God would even allow a speck of dust in his presence? Everything would unravel. But praise be to God, he is unswervingly holy. It is a precious thing for the church that our God is always holy in everything he does. Do you believe that? Now notice in the text as it goes on and it says, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? You know what treachery is? Betrayal. Remember Hezekiah, years before this, had shown the Chaldeans, the people of Babylon, when they came with their emissaries, he, he decided to open up the temple riches and to show them everything because he thought, well, these guys are so far away, they will never invade the land. And he gets backstabbed, right? Judah gets backstabbed. Chaldea looked like their allies, but now they treacherously betrayed them. Treachery is what the devil did in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. He lied. He backstabbed them. Have you ever been backstabbed? Perhaps it was a business deal. They upsold you on something. But when the truth came out, 
It wasn't what you thought it was. Perhaps you've been backstabbed as a kid, somebody, a friend, spoke, spoke behind your back. Perhaps later it could be a spouse, it could be a child, an adult child, it could be a parent, it could be hard. Treachery is very, very personal. The hurt of treachery can't be described with words, can it? Take the Chaldean treachery and let us learn from it to be people that are very sound and honest with our words. We can all do better to be clear, to be people of integrity. Sometimes for the sake of looking good to others, we're willing to throw someone else under the bus, even a little bit. And we try to prop ourselves up. That is also a form of treachery. Let's watch ourselves. It says in the text where God says, And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. Now this is kind of interesting because it's like he's saying Chaldea is a lot worse than Judah. Now we know from the beginning of Habakkuk that he had just said Judah is going roughshod over the law of God. The wicked are prospering. So if Judah is bad and he says Chaldea is way worse, God, why are you not speaking up? That could be what he's saying. Judah is bad, but better than the Chaldeans. And that could be what this text means. It could also mean, however, that there is a righteous remnant within the people of Judah, such as Habakkuk, and he's pleading for them. Lord, how are you allowing them to be run over by the ruthless Babylonians? Well, whichever way we look at this text, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no one that's absolutely righteous. We know that from Scripture, right? There's none righteous, no, not one. But we do know that there are people who are relatively more righteous because of common grace. We aren't as bad as we could be. There are definitely people who are more given to sin than others. Do you remember what uh, happened at Sodom and Gomorrah? Just before Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham pleads. What does he plead? He says, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? It's kind of similar to what Habakkuk is doing. He's, he's, he's just pleading, Well, shall not the judge of all the earth do right here? What's going on? He's pleading for maybe the few righteous people left. And we are taught by this to plead, to plead for the people of God. Do you plead for the church? Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for the church in our community, in our nation? Are we on our knees for a nation? Yes, that is given in many ways to lasciviousness. But are you praying for the church of God that is here? The witness, the lamp that still exists. Do you pray for her? But sometimes you look at this idea of the worst plundering those who are not in the same dark estate, although everybody we know by Scripture is given to darkness. But definitely you, there's a shock that we don't understand, and this can hit home. You could be minding your own business, just doing your thing in your family, and suddenly you get a phone call from the bank. Your credit card got hacked. 
was just minding my own business here. I was, you know, just doing something not too bad. Or you get burned in a business transaction. You know, Christians especially can be plagued with the question that is something like this. Lord, I know I'm not perfect because we know there's none righteous, no, not one. And we know we are sinners by nature, transformed by grace. But why do the wicked flourish? I'm not nearly as bad as them. I go to church. I read the Bible. I treat my neighbors decently. Why this? Why this? Why do they get devoured then? Perhaps you've had those questions in your life. Suffering, the Bible teaches us, is not always due to a particular sin. Remember, the apostles asked Jesus that. He says, is this man worse than others. And Jesus says, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We do know this. Suffering is due to original sin, not necessarily due to particular sin, because in the particulars, some people should be getting it much worse, and they aren't right now, and we are perplexed. But one thing we know is because of original sin, we deserve worse. That's why we sang amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Because grace is unmerited favor. Getting what you don't deserve. But when these things happen, and you do get that phone call from the bank, you, there is a mystery to all these things. Why some more than others? Why are some people dealing with a, a terrible divorce and others are not why is it that some have a chronic health issue all their lives and others seem to be fine all their lives physically mystery should result then in an attitude of humility that's the right response don't get calloused or stoic to these things pains and feelings are real And lamenting, lamentation with faith is very biblical. And we must give ourselves and each others the freedom for lament. Not many people talk about lament, but it's in the Bible. Now notice the word devouring here in the text. The wicked devoureth the man. You know, the wicked hate those who might look better than they do. Remember Cain? Cain, it says in the Bible, slew his brother Abel. Why? John asks the question, why did he slay him? And we get this answer. It's kind of insight from the New Testament back into the first murder. It says this, 1 John 3, 12, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous and the wicked hate it when righteousness gets done. So what do you do? You crush the righteous. You put out the lamp of the righteous. Because the more the light shines, the darker you look. And that's why the response of Cain is to do that. You see, goodness is scorned by wickedness because it highlights their blackness. Have you ever made fun of people for holding strong values and upright principles, but you mock them? 
It can happen in many ways. People that hold high views of family values. And behind their back, you're like, well, they really take that all so seriously. Something like that. Why do we do that? You done that? Are you devouring the righteous? It says he devours them. The word there is to swallow up. The word to swallow up is the same word that was used when Pharaoh and his armies were swallowed into the Red Sea. There, those who rejected God's people were consumed. This is a covenant reversal because Chaldea now comes and undoes what Israel's blessing was, and now Israel is getting swallowed up. There's many covenant reversals in Habakkuk because God is showing his covenant people that if they reject their covenant God, he will give them the curses that were part of the other nations. I think this verse 13 should cause us to see the wonder of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole idea of the righteous being had for the unrighteous and the unrighteous crushing the righteous. Well, we see in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous one. He would face the grossest injustice. Here's a question that we don't often ask. Have you wrestled and grappled with the injustice of the cross? People wear crosses on a necklace or they've got one on their Bibles. Well, the cross was an instrument of barbaric torture and injustice. It was, a, it was a grueling instrument. I remember I've said to you guys once before that if you realize these crosses weren't high on a hill. No, they were mostly at eye level. And so when, when bodies were hung up on these crosses, you could gaze them right in the eye and see the agony. And there the righteous son of God hung as he was betrayed as he was, as the law was pushed to the side so they could kill him. And as it says in Acts, you were slain by anomious, lawless hands have taken. The Romans took them. You see, Habakkuk's shock that God ordained Chaldea should transport us to the shock of Calvary's cross. Has it done that for you, for you personally? And yet, as with the destruction of Judah, so it is with the death of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The destruction of Judah was ordained. We saw that. The destruction of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death was ordained. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. And in all that time, while we have a gross injustice, it would not compromise God's justice. That is the irony, the paradox of the cross. The same act was totally unjust on our side and completely just from God's side. By taking our sin, Christ satisfied God's just wrath on sinners. God, who it said, as we saw, cannot look on iniquity turned away from his sin-bearing son so that his pure eyes can now behold us. That's the amazement of the cross, that he 
took our sin so that the pure eyes of the Father can smile. His countenance can be upon us. Sinners by birth, transformed by grace. Have you seen yourself in Babylon, in the injustice? And do you know yourself in Christ, the just one? It's the most important question you can ask yourself this morning. Young children, do you see yourself in Babylon, but do you know yourself in Christ? Point number two, gathering with greedy delight and make us man as the fishes of the sea and as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. Notice it talks about the two categories of animals here, fishes, fish we say nowadays, and creeping things. Now it could be that these creeping things are referring to the shrimp and the lowlifes, the bottom dwellers of the oceans perhaps, or just the creepy crawlies that you see out in the garden sometimes. Either way, it doesn't matter. There's two categories and in the law, Fish were clean animals, but creeping things were unclean animals. And it, what it tells us is the Chaldeans will come in and they will bulldoze over both categories, the fish and the creepy crawlies, over the righteous and the unrighteous. God-fearing or not, they'll come. Such barbarity is very current in what's going on right now in the Middle East when people are using civilians as human shields and using hospitals as military headquarters, they are bulldozing over the innocent and the not innocent. They, it doesn't matter. And so this is nothing new. It is a very Chaldean-like thing that we see when warfare happens, and we see it today. Now, fish and creeping things, it's interesting. Habakkuk could have used sheep. He could have used cattle. But instead, he talks about fish and creeping things. Why is that? It highlights the kind of creatures that humans had no involvement in raising, and yet they could graze them for food, well, especially the fish in this case. And Chaldea treats Judah as food, harvesting what they did not sow. They made no more of killing men than of catching fish. They flourish where they had not put any effort. Perhaps you've seen the godless flourish. You have a neighbor, perhaps, who harvests his crops on Sundays, who swears like a sailor, who's on his fourth marriage, and somehow, when the land beside you that you'd been eyeing up for years goes for sale, he gets it. You don't understand. How can it be that my kids get sick after all the precautions I've taken. I've been praying diligently for them. I've been giving them a super healthy diet. Everything I have is grown in the garden. I milk my own cow. I, I butcher my own meat. I've got it all. My freezer is full of healthy stuff. And yet my neglectful neighbor, my unbelieving friend here, who really doesn't do any of that stuff and buys what we would consider the garbage at the grocery store, they've got the healthy kids. You see, what we see in Chaldea's success is a destruction of the idea of a prosperity gospel. It destroys and undoes any idea of that, that we, by our actions and by how good we are, ought to be flourishing here on this earth. Get rid of that idea. 
It's not in the Bible. And it's definitely not in Habakkuk. How's your theology standing up? Now, the key phrase of the fish and the creeping things is actually seen in the phrase that describes them at the end, that have no ruler over them. You see, Judah is defenseless. Who was their ruler? God. And now it seems there's no God to defend them. Where is he to write and set things straight? But this phrase of having no ruler and fish and creeping things has deeper roots in Scripture. Do you know where that might be? It refers right back to the garden where God gives the dominion mandate to Adam and Eve. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And that lists all kinds of animals, right? And Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Who has established the glory in the heavens. And then it goes on and it talks about the rule, the dominion that man has been given over all kinds of animals. And it goes down the list. And at the end, it says to the fish and the things that pass through the paths of the sea, the lowlifes, the bottom dwellers. You see what's happening here? Israel is being treated inhumanely and at the lowest end. This is another reversal of the dominion mandate. It's interesting because of Solomon, who would have been the wisest king to have lived, even though he plummeted at the end of his life, it says this in scripture, and he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees and of the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. This guy was just an amazing biologist, and he understood these things, and he saw in all of these things the design of God, the marvelous intricacies. And it says in the Bible that people came from all over to hear his wisdom, from all the kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. But all of this, with this, because the kings had denied God and had forsaken him, it gets inverted. And now, now Habakkuk talks about his own people as fish and creepy crawlies. Creation reversal, even today in Neo-Babylon, New Babylon, wicked nation that we are, we see that creation is being overturned. What's happening and being legislated in Canada is against God's dominion mandate, where we see ideas of sexuality, identity, the dignity of life, and people willing to spend thousands of dollars on a pet for surgery, but are tight-fisted when it comes to the suffering in this land, where once we respected the elders, and now we treat them as cull cows. we got to be wondering what is happening to this nation. It is a judgment. It is an reversal. It is a reversal of the dominion mandate. And that's what Babylon does when Babylon takes over the land in judgment. You see, really, the image of God is under assault. Which is why maybe one of the things you need to study to teach your families what it means to be an image bearer of God because that sets man apart from the rest of creation. Verse 15 
This gets interesting because it says that they take up with them the angle, they catch them with their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Habakkuk now tells us how they hunt their prey. Well, it's hunting season, so you hunters among us understand the idea of catching your prey. But remember, we're talking about fish. It talks about the angle or the hook. Assyria, the nation that Babylon would crush, but that had kind of ruled the entire Middle East for years, had the practice of putting a hook in the lip, the lower lip of their captors, and then stringing all these captors on the lips together, single file, and bringing them off into captivity. Amos actually speaks of this when he says in Amos 4.2, he says, The day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. And now Babylon does the same thing as Assyria did to Israel, Babylon does to Judah. But look in the text when it says the um, verse 15 when it says, and they take up all of them in the angle. Only all would satisfy. We see this throughout history. Alexander the Great is said to have wept that there was but one world for him to conquer. He wanted more. Julius Caesar, who would be in Latin, out Caesar, out nullus, which means either Caesar or nothing. He wanted it all, all dominion. Is this not exactly where sin ultimately leads us? All or nothing. More, more power, more hunger, more to take. You see, left to himself, the sinner will not be satisfied until he has it all. That little temptation to tell your boss a white lie, to look good, and to get that promotion you've been eyeing up, do you think it will end at the white lie? It always goes further. That little triumph you had over your sibling because you got to the cookie plate first and you took the big one that was on the other side of the plate is a springboard to doing, doing the same thing in bigger ways. The Puritan John Trapp says this. He says, covetousness is boundless and ambition rides without reins. It's quite a statement. The Bible actually talks about this really simply. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. You see, Chaldea is just part and parcel. It is the quintessential example of man given to sin. Arms open, clasping, wanting it all. And the only way to be free from Babylon's greed is severed not by how good you are, not by how much effort you put in, not by going to church, but in Jesus Christ who slays that sinful desire. You know, there's that song, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He breaks the power. How precious is the work of Christ. But let's go on here. It says, they catch them in their net and they drag them in their, gather them in their drag. 
ancient images of Babylon are actually seeing their gods, that we, we find these in archaeology, showing the gods dragging a net in which their captures, um, captured enemies are squirming. But notice in the text, this is, this is quite striking, there's a progression of implements here. It's almost as if the hunter starts with the, the small pocket knife and then moves up to the, the 243 and now he's using the 30-odd six. That's happening here as well because look in the text, we start with the angle, the hook, single, one fish. Then we get the net, which is a throwing net, which was probably a few yards wide. And then to cap it all off, we get the drag. The drag we know from history was about three dozen yards wide to catch way more. That's what they were doing. And in increasing quantities, the Chaldeans are gathering their prey. Think about that. From a hook to catch one to the drag to catch an entire school of fish. Poisonous doctrine starts with one. It hooks one person. Yeah, you buy that book. It could be one of you. It could be me. Brings it into our home. And slowly, small things can bleed out to make big things. It quickly infects whole groups. The teachings like these, that there are modern apostles and prophets, the idea of women in office, the idea that God is your buddy or God is mutable, the idea that God wants you to have your best life now, the idea that you're saved by the faith of your parents, the idea that salvation is you cooperating with God, the idea that at some level you have something to contribute in your salvation, be it ever so small, just one drop, it undoes everything, and soon that dragnet will come sweeping in, and we see denominations capitulate to those teachings. The friends you hang out with could be one bad friend. He may hook you, but pretty soon he hooks more. What have you been reading lately? Do you kick up your feet when there's conversations to be had with the young people among you? Who do you talk with after church? You only talk with people that you're comfortable with, people of your own age group. You just right away get these little huddles, and there's people left to themselves. When's the last time you took an active interest in somebody else outside of that little group? You see, if the net of evil is cast wide, how much wider shouldn't the net of truth be cast? do that. But now look what the text says. Therefore they rejoice and are glad because of the large catch, right? You see, sin isn't just wanting something that's forbidden. It actually gets happy when it has broken the law. It feels good to break the law, and it rejoices in that. How can people in our nation in the West right now, why is it that there are people that are rejoicing in the slaughter that happened on October 7th? It baffles me. They rejoice and are glad at the atrocities that happened. I don't get it. But we've seen it before. Babylon did the same thing. 
How is it that we have pro-abortion activists just ecstatic that they have the right to slay people? Now in Ohio, they just had the rule up to nine months, up to birth. And they're happy. They rejoice and are glad. Who seem, what or who deems it right? Who deems, sorry, the right of no-fault divorce to be a victory? for this nation. It has crushed this nation. It's not rejoice in the things God hates. You know, but perhaps you need to consider yourselves. We need to consider ourselves. Have you ever gotten a financial profit, a little bit of a windfall, even a small one? But what you did wasn't all above board. You ever had that? Yeah, it was just a small thing. You manipulated just a bit to get the advantage. But now you stroke your head in profit. You're kind of smug about it. If you ever reminisced about something mischievous you've done when you were a kid, and with a twinkle in, an, in your eye, and with a little bit of a smirk on your face, you're telling your stories to your kids, almost proud of what you did. I gotta confess, I've done that. Sadly done that. They rejoice and be glad on something God hates. You see, what I see in Babylon is how great the vileness of my sin is. How dark its black soot flows through me and how precious the Lord Jesus Christ is. How patient God is with me. With us. And how thoroughly he cleanses me from all my sin. Because left to myself, I am another Babylon. And that leads me to the last point. Given to godless desires. You see, because the words to rejoice and be glad are actually cultic words. They're words of worship. The word to be glad actually connotes dancing in a circle as they would do in worship celebrations. And the words in the Hebrew, rejoice and be glad, if you do a study on them together, you'll see they're often for the people of Israel when they worship God. But now Babylon worships and rejoices their gods. Verse 16, therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. You see, Babylon had already deranged the horizontal by dehumanizing people, right? Treat them as the bottom dwellers. But they also derange in going this way. They also derange that way, the vertical. They openly blaspheme the God of heaven itself. They sacrifice to their own net and offer incense to their drag. Because after all, we did this. You see, Chaldea is steeped in paganism. Now, you might be sitting here this morning. You've come to church many times, and you say in your heart, you don't say this out loud maybe to anybody, I don't believe all this religion stuff. Perhaps you think, you might be thinking this. I'll forgive you if you do. That preacher is nuts. <laughs> and you think, I'm not religious. I don't believe this stuff. Well, if that's you, 
Do you live with purpose? You do, don't you? You do something for a reason. Who establishes purpose in your life? Do you hold to morals? Well, who's the lawgiver that gives you morals? Do you live with the knowledge of value and that I'm worth something? Well, who authorizes the value of a human being? You esteem reason and thinking. Well, how do you establish the value of reason without first assuming reason? And if you do that, you are violating one of the fallacies of reasoning, which is circular reasoning. You can't do it. You see, in every which way, godlessness and paganism borrows from Christianity to establish some sort of foundation. And then from that borrowed capital, they try to shoot down God. You see, atheism and paganism are hollow. And you, my dear friend, are a lot more religious than you might think. And in rejecting the God of Scripture, you, my dear friend, are sacrificing to your dreg. Johann Peter Lang said this. He says, the sinner perverts the holiest thing in man. And you know what he says it is? Worship. Worship. Everything is a snare to him who forsakes God. But in idolatry, you think, my idols have made me plenteous. That's what it says. By them, their meat is plenteous. Well, who allows you to prosper? Well, quickly, we sacrifice to our drag. Well, we do this too, you know. Don't, don't just say, oh, it's, it's the pagan Babylonians that do this kind of stuff. We do it. We're given to this stuff often. How many times haven't you praised your smarts, your savvy, your connections, your strength? You see, either we are worshiping God or we are worshiping self and the gods we have created. Calvin said, God cannot be truly glorified except man holy empty themselves. Is it any wonder that scripture says for the people of God, Joel 2.23, be glad then ye children of Zion and rejoice. Those two same words in the Lord Jehovah your God. There's a joy in knowing God. How suitable how suitable it was and is for us to gather here this morning and to sing the praises of our God. It is the right reaction for the daily blessings he bestows upon it. How appropriate it is to thank God before you take a bite of your meal this afternoon. It is the right thing to do, to worship him, to thank him for the food you've been given. You and I don't deserve anything. How thankful we ought to be instead of giving it to our drag and saying, oh man, look at how good I brought in, how much food I brought in. Look at the deer I shot. Look at the coleslaw I just prepared. No, thank God. Notice the terms. Because them by them, their portion is fat. What is your portion? Babylon got all they wanted, but it was hollow. It was a hollow portion. It was an empty portion, wasn't it? The word portion in the Bible is thick with covenant language because Judah had lost sight of what their portion is. God had brought judgment. Who is Israel's portion? The Bible tells us their portion is God himself. 
Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. And you know who the Lord's portion is? So if, if Israel's portion is God, you know who God's portion is? Israel. Deuteronomy 32, 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. You see, the fat of the land is not going to be your stuff the home you have. It's not going to be your family. It's not going to be your health. It's not going to be your earthly empires. It's not going to be your bank account. It will not be any of those things. You see, for the church, our portion, our wonderful portion, is Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is our reward, and therefore the worship of God is the sacrifice of what? Of praise with our lips to God daily looking to him, daily delighting ourselves in him, daily reminding each other of Christ, our great inheritance. This brings me to verse 17. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? You see, the image here is now they've caught the fish, they've dragged them in, they've thanked themselves and their gods for what they've done, and now they empty their nets, and what do they do? They go right back and take more. That's what they do. Babylon dumps their maimed captives and starts over, does it again. You see, think about this for fish especially. For fish, the point at which you empty the net is the point of life and death, is it not? You've ever maybe seen this, maybe you're a fisherman yourself, and you see them squirming and, and, and flailing around in the net, and you dump it, and they lie there on the boat or on the dock, dying. It's the moment, the critical moment. And Habakkuk's wondering, Lord, in the most critical moment, how can it be that you just let your people die out there and Babylon just leaves them as refuge and out she goes to do it to somebody else? Because that's what it says. Did you see the, the words here? To slay, what does it say? The nations, goyim, the nations, the peoples, the Gentiles. Babylon wants it all. Beyond the covenant people, Habakkuk says, beyond our people, God, what about humanity? You see, because Babylon only gets hungrier and really unveils the darkness of the human heart, that tells us why you should not get excited when nations establish human rights codes or we have ideas of United Nations or others have tried communist manifestos, others have propped up democratic people because it will not stop the death. It will not stop the fishermen from going out to do it all over again. Do you believe that? You can just hear the desperation. Oh God, rise up. Are you not the Lord of the nations? Will you not assert the rightful place? I'm going to close with some applications out of these verses from Habakkuk's pleading here, learn these things. There's two ways to respond to hardship. You will either seek to join Babylon, who rejected the true God, and Babylon is no more, or you can be like Habakkuk, and when adversity strikes you or us, pray. Yes, in perplexity, but not fatalistically. Do what Habakkuk does, who cleaved 
to God, clasped God in prayer. Learn also that we spent now a good hour looking at the various descriptions of evil, the evil of Babylon. There is something right, the Bible says, in naming the particulars of evil because knowing its particulars is the first step to opposing it. How often do we pray, oh Lord, please be with this nation, it's dark. Well, what's dark in this nation? What's breaking this town apart? What are the hardships that are affecting your families? Do you name them? Can you identify them? Have you thought them through and weighed them in the balances of Holy Scripture? Or do you just generalize? Is that you? Generalizing? You know what you do when you generalize? You put in your time. That's what you do. You pray generally. Now let's see things for what they are. Learn that Babylon is full of murder and is like one of the, he is one of the sons of Cain, a son of the devil Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. You see, murder drives us back to Cain, which drives us back to the devil. And Babylon is a representative of Satan's war against God and his people. And therefore, therefore, please hear this. You can never be at home in Babylon. You can't. We are pilgrims seeking a heavenly country. Learn also that mere military force and law cannot establish justice. But oh, we believe that so quickly. No, we need Christ's arm of might and Christ's power to change the to change. This nation, lead on, O King, eternal. Not in swords loud clashing, but in Christ. You see in Babylon's judgments that the rod of God's anger strikes at hearts of stones. But it is the gentle breath of the Spirit that transforms those stony hearts into flesh which is why Habakkuk's prayer is probably more powerful than the judgment that passed on Babylon. Learn also that faith wrought questioning, lamentation, and grappling is biblical. God is not Allah, the God of the Quran whose will must never be questioned, who would never engage relationally as Jehovah, our God, does. No, God is not like that. Suffering, injustice, perhaps for you a shattered future, perhaps it's financial hardship, perhaps it's a wayward child that is lost and wants nothing to do with God should not drive you to see God as some, some distant deity who doesn't care. No, we see in Habakkuk, he is nigh unto all those who draw upon him. Habakkuk believes that, and Habakkuk cries out to him. But you know what Habakkuk doesn't do? This is very important. He does not charge God with sin. He's perplexed, but his mouth stops at that point. And so, dear people, if you are dealing with any of those things and a thousand more, cry out to God. Wonder why God. Plead 
and do what Habakkuk does. I love, I love this analogy. He presses the gates of heaven. He bangs on the door, as it were. He, he tries to bring God's edicts back to God. He says, God, you gave us your edicts here on earth. I'm bringing them back to your courts. Please, God, hear me. But he does all of this harnessed with the truths of Scripture. Notice this prayer. This prayer of Habakkuk is public. This is an important point. Private prayer is the place we often wrestle with our deepest struggles, isn't it? But public prayer takes a stand. Do you grapple personally, but also stand for justice publicly and are unashamed to call out to God? You are my God and do it in front of others. Through Habakkuk, we learn God allows his people to struggle. This is part of Christianity. Struggle is part of the pilgrim way. So don't be surprised when it hits you. Theology may be learned from teachers and preachers, but it is sharpened in the crucible of life, and God designed it that way. And lastly, Habakkuk wonders why God holds his tongue, doesn't he? Silence does not mean inaction. Yes, in verse 17, we end with the phrase to slay the nations. It seems the whole world is lost right now. Babylon destroys the nations. But hear this, Christ will inherit the nations. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how precious are your ways. Your thoughts are so beyond our thoughts. Oh Lord, great is your word. Great are the things that you allow in your providence to befall this world to befall me and one another. Lord, may we learn from your word and be people of light, holding forth the word of life, that we may rejoice in the Lord Jesus on that great day. In his name, amen.